If you would like to, turn in your Bibles or navigate on your device to John chapter 3. We're putting in at verse 16. Our text will take us down to verse 21 this morning. I like to emphasize you following along because I appreciate God's ability to speak to you directly from his word as we are teaching it. So John 3, 16 through 21, the title of our message, not that it's a competition, but God loves me, 316. Let's have a word of prayer. Father, this morning, uh, we're glad. We have glad hearts, Lord, to be your body. Individually, Lord, your Holy Spirit indwells us. Collectively, he, uh, we are his temple. You promised that you would walk among your candlesticks, Lord, which is another metaphor for the church. And so there's a, a perfect time, Lord, right now for us to be ministered to by you, to see your grace, to understand your mercy. Uh, and today, as we take on this amazing text, uh, to know how much you loved us from eternity past to eternity future. Indeed, Lord, you love us and you love us lots. We thank you and praise you in Jesus' name. And those who agreed said, amen. I'd break out in hives if I had to sing that song in every show. The singer, Robert Plant, quoted in 1988 the song, Stairway to Heaven. In 1975, Mick Jagger told People Magazine, I'd rather be dead than sing Satisfaction when I'm 45. He's 78, and though he might be dead and not know it, he continues to perform it. You are likely unfamiliar with Henry Morehouse. He was a young minister D.L. Moody met in England. Morehouse introduced himself by saying, I'll preach for you in America. Moody politely said, if you'd ever get to Chicago, come down to the church and I will give you a chance to preach. Months later, Morehouse telegrammed Moody to say he was in Chicago. Moody agreed for Morehouse to preach when he was away. Upon returning, Moody asked his wife, how the young preacher did. Oh, he's better preacher than you are, his wife said. Always great to hear. I don't know if that's ever happened in our house. but uh, He's telling sinners that God loves them. That's not right, said Moody. God does not love sinners. Well, she said, you go and hear him. He's been preaching all week and he has only had one verse for a text, John 3, 16. Moody went, heard Morehouse preach on that one verse, and afterwards said it was on that night that he first clearly understood the gospel and God's great love. Moody said, I have preached a different gospel since, and I have had more power with God and men since then. According to pulpit lore, every sermon Morehouse preached was from John 3.16. He did not, however, preach the same recycled sermon They were always different. John 3.16 is the inexhaustible declaration of the love of God for the loved of God. I'll organize my comments around two points. Number one, believe in Jesus and you are the loved of God who will not perish. Number two, don't believe in Jesus and you are the loved of God who will perish. Let's take a look at those of us who are in the non-perishing category in verse 16. Herschel Hobbes called it the gospel in superlatives. Martin Luther called it the Bible in miniature. A.T. Robertson referred to it as the little gospel. Jerry Vines calls it the gospel in a nutshell. 
and says, if all the other verses in the Bible were lost but this one, we would nonetheless still have them since all the rest of the verses in the Bible are contained in John 3.16. A little child can understand it even though all the scholars of the ages cannot fathom its depth. Your Bible may have these verses in red, but verses 16 through 21 are John's comments about Jesus' words that ended at verse 15 in his commentary with uh, Nicodemus. First of all, in John 3.16, it seems the cross is in the past. He's not looking forward to it. We're talking about a past event. And second, Jesus never refers to himself as God's only begotten son. And so we're pretty confident that this is John's commentary, but either way, it's the word of God. John 3.16, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him should not perish but have everlasting life. The translators of the New King James Version that I am reading made a good choice adding a comma. The words before the comma declare the love of God for the world by sending Jesus. He gave his only begotten son, comma. And then the words after describe the response of the loved of God to the invitation of Jesus, whoever believes in him. And so we start with the heavenlies uh, with for God. It actually reads, I'm told, for the God. He is the almighty God of the Bible, the creator of the universe. There is none like him. God desires to have a relationship with his creation. He doesn't need it, but he desires it. I came across this worth sharing quote, unless the universe created itself, the natural revelation of God through creation is supernatural revelation. And so God, from the beginning, wanted to share a relationship with man. Again, doesn't need to, wants to. He is the creator. And as we read through the Bible, we see that built into creation is the glory of God. It declares the glory of God. Now, preachers are always afraid uh, because they say it's a natural revelation. You can only know God so well from creation. Uh, and that, insofar as it's true, it's true. Uh, but it, creation was not natural, it was supernatural. And you can know that there is a God and know many things about that God through creation. And as people around the world who don't have the word of God uh, seek the Lord through creation, they're liable to uh, receive more information about him. In fact, in the book of Acts, the Bible says God scattered people all over the planet for the purpose that they would seek after him and find him. And so uh, God is reaching out always. The God of the Bible is reaching out to reveal himself to others. The description of Christians as evangelicals uh, used to be a, a, a more positive thing, but now it's tainted. It's associated with behaviors unbecoming of a believer. It's become a media slur. It's shameful because the God we serve is evangelical, he doesn't wish that sinners perish. Uh, right from the beginning, he's been reaching out to us right after Adam and Eve sinned. Uh, the God of the Bible, the Almighty God, wants to know us. For, so, uh, for God so, and the word is agape, for love. We're talking about pure spiritual love. It's a love that desires to give, not depending on the worthiness of the one loved, but on the nature of the one who loves. 
There's more than agape. That's interesting because, you know, you think, well, there's these different loves that are mentioned in, in the scripture or the, the Greek language. There's eros and stergo and phileo and agape. Eros is more of a physical love, which, by the way, doesn't appear in the Bible. It's not that there aren't, uh, you know, it's not that there isn't marriage or things that go on in marriage, but it, eros doesn't appear in the New Testament. And then stergo, uh, I forget what that even means. And then there's phileo, which is brotherly love. Stergo, I think, is like a social love. And then agape, the pinnacle of love. But here, John says, when you're talking about God's agape, it is so agape. I mean, that's actually what he says. It's like, hey, you know, it almost sounds like a hippie. It's like, so agape, you know. That's not really a hippie. That would be like uh, one of the mean girls, I think. But anyway. And so God so loved the world. He's so agape. Jerry Vines describes the scope of it. He says, there was never a time when God began to love you. God's love reaches to eternity past before you were born. Before the earth was created and before the sun, the moon, and the stars existed, God loved you. God's love reaches to eternity. There will never be a time when God will cease to love you. When the heavens roll away like a scroll and the stars fall from their sockets like chunks of coal, God will still love you. For God so loved the cosmos is the word for world. John uses that word 78 times in his gospel. 24 more times in his three inspired letters. It can refer to the world system organized in antagonism to God, but most often the word refers to the realm where human beings live and the people who live in that realm. In other words, the plain meaning of cosmos translated as world is anyone, anywhere, at any time. Now, you may have friends who insist that world does not mean anyone, anywhere, at any time. They limit the word to those God chose in eternity past that he foreknew he would save. His choosing excludes the majority of human beings that he created, and that condemns them to the lake of fire for a decision they did not and could not make. And if you're wondering who in the world would think that, little pun there, uh, a lot of Christians do. Uh, and, and it's a very popular position among younger generation of Christians. Uh, it's sometimes referred uh, to as Reformed theology, most often as Calvinism, uh, that God only died for and only saved a select group of people from out of the whole world. John's use of world doesn't in any way suggest God's love was or is limited. I want you to listen to three verses and ask yourself, does God's so agape seem limited by these? In his first letter, John says, Jesus is the satisfaction for our sins, and not for ours only, but also for the sins of the whole world. John 12, 32, if I am lifted up from the earth, Jesus said, I will draw all people to myself. And then in uh, 1 Timothy 4, 10, we trust in the living God, the savior of all men, especially of those who believe. And so we take it that Jesus' death was sufficient for the sins of the whole world. He saves any and all who believe, and the cross has the power to draw all men to himself so that they can make that decision. Biblical proof is foundational to any discussion. Uh, you don't want to start with anecdotes or illustrations. You always want to have a firm foundation in the Bible. But it is also good to see the broader moral context. 
Where does what you believe lead you? If this is where you're, if this is what you believe, what is the end of that? Our theology should not lead us to conclude something that is obviously untrue of God. I came across the following illustration, and like all illustrations, it's not perfect, but I, I like it. Let me read it to you. An off-duty fireman rushes into a burning orphanage to save the children. They cannot escape by themselves, and they can be saved only if he rescues them. He comes out bringing three of the 30 children. Rather than going back in to save more children, the fireman goes over to the news media and talks about how praiseworthy he is for saving three children. What about the other 27 children? He had the means to rescue the children and was the only one who could. Do we view the fireman as morally praiseworthy? I suggest that we would not. Probably he would be charged with depraved indifference. If we do not find that behavior praiseworthy in humans, why would we find it praiseworthy in God? And yet people who believe in a limited atonement, in a, uh, a chosen elect group that can only get saved while the majority can't, say that it somehow gives glory to God. God doesn't have to save anybody. He can send everybody to hell. The fact that he saves a few shows how gracious he is and how glorified he will be as you see these others pass on into a Christless eternity in hell. I don't think so. God cannot be guilty of depraved indifference. He can't be indifferent. He so loved the world. Not everyone will be saved, but everyone can. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son. Begotten son is better translated unique son. In the first two chapters, John told us that Jesus is uniquely God incarnate. God in human flesh, fully God and fully human. He was always God and he added humanity to his deity to be the one and only God-man. That's what we're celebrating here in this Christmas season. God coming in human flesh, God the man. Fully God, fully human. R.G. Lee said, Jesus was the only one ever born who had a heavenly father but no heavenly mother, an earthly mother but no heav uh, earthly father, the only one ever born older than his mother and as old as his father. It's an interesting way of looking at things. As man, Jesus could step in as substitute for the death we all deserve as wages for sin. As God, his sacrifice was perfect. It satisfied God's holiness. The Father can declare righteous everyone who believes in the Son. It's hard to, to uh, kind of get a handle on this for me, so here's how I sometimes picture it. Uh, you ever seen those scenes in movies or on TV where somebody's standing there and all of a sudden somebody peeks out from behind them? You, you couldn't see them until they moved. I, I, I sort of see God the Father looking at me, but he sees Jesus and I'm behind Jesus. And because Jesus died for me and I am in him, when the Father sees the Son, he, he sees me. He sees you if you're a Christian. And because of what Jesus did, because he died for your sins and gave you his righteousness, the Father can declare you righteous. He can say it's just as if you'd never sinned because of what Jesus did. And, and so that's why Jesus was born, and that's what God gave him to do. God so loved the world that he gave him. Quoting Jerry Vines again, the eternal God confined God himself to the narrow dimensions of a woman's womb. When Jesus was born, God was born. The infinite became an infant. 
The creator became a creature, God in a cradle. The physical circumstances of his birth were not what you'd expect for the Messiah. Uh, you often hear around Christmas time about how, you know, born in a manger under, you know, humble circumstances to a humble family from Nazareth. Can any good thing come of Nazareth? All of that. Don't overlook the moral circumstances of his birth and his life. Remember that Jesus was thought by the majority of people to be an illegitimate child. Mary knew the truth. Elizabeth knew the truth. Joseph believed the truth. A small circle of people probably around them believed that she was conceived a child by the Holy Spirit. Uh, but it's a, it's a tough ask. And, and even the Jewish leaders, when Jesus was in his ministry, at one time uh, slurred him and accused him of being illegitimate. Jesus, of course, let it fall down, and he said, hey, you're of your father, the devil, nanny nanny. You know, so... <laughs> And so he grew up in those circumstances, you know, a kind of an outcast in that society uh, and, and such. He was despised and rejected by his own people when he started his ministry, falsely accused, illegally tried, convicted, beaten, scourged, crucified. We're told that God did not spare his own son, but delivered him up for us all. He gave him in a true sense. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever... Now, you Greek scholars, I know there's several of you, will be able to verify the accuracy of the following quote. Uh, listen up. This is what I have to read each week to, to, for you. I don't understand it, but I read it. The transliteration of the word whoever is the Greek word pas, P-A-S. It is used 1,228 times in the New Testament. It is translated as whoever, all, whosoever, and every. It is a pronomial substantival adjective. <laughs> you knew that, right? <laughs> as an adjective, it modifies the participle pisteun, which is translated believes. As a substantive, it fills the noun slot. As a pronominal, uh, it functions as a pronoun. Pas with the participle pisteun occurs four times in John's Gospel. Verse 15, here in verse 16, and in chapter 6, verse 40, it carries the idea of totality. It means a totality and the inclusion of every individual part. Albert Einstein said, if you can't explain it to a six-year-old, you don't understand it yourself. The six-year-old explanation of what I quoted is this. Anyone who believes, every single person it is a non-restrictive word. The idea is anyone, anywhere, anytime. And so a lot of times, you know, people will say that, the, again, the word whoever means this, uh, a small group of whoever out of the whole small group of the world. And the Bible says, no, anyone, anywhere, anytime who believes, any human being who believes. For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten son that whoever believes in him. The world is not limited to, uh, to, by itself, and whoever is anyone. And so we conclude that God has given every person a capacity to believe. Theologian Norman Geisler describes our capacity to believe by saying it has been, quote, effaced, not erased, limited, not lost, damaged, but not destroyed. The best way I know to put it is that God the Holy Spirit frees our will enabling us to receive or to reject Jesus Christ. Earlier in the Gospel, John, uh, we read, as many as received him, to them gave he power to become the sons of God, 
even to them that believe on his name. And so John says you believe, you receive, they're kind of interchangeable. You believe the Lord, you receive the Lord, and then he gives you power. In other words, you make a choice to receive or reject Christ, and those who receive, receive the Holy Spirit and have power to live the Christian life. God regenerates them. Gerald Borchert reminds us, you remember Gerald? He moved to Michigan once too, but anyway, no, I'm just... <laughs> God is... <laughs> well, you know, you run across these guys. I'm quoting from a, a book that I trust, and so, you know, whoever heard of Gerald Borchert, but it's a great quote. God is the initiator and principal actor in salvation, and we should never think salvation originated with us. God, however, has given humanity a sense of freedom and requires us to make a choice. Accordingly, people are responsible for their believing. It is unproductive theological speculation to minimize either the role of God or humanity in the salvation process. The Bible and John 3.16 especially recognize the roles of both. There must be an element of freed will when you talk about love because love can never be forced upon you and be called love. There's no, there's no way to say that so, I so agape you that I'm going to force you to love me. It has to be returned freely. Now, talking about love reduces it to something academic, takes away its beauty the way dissecting a flower to understand it better leaves it in pieces on your table. Augustine said, God loves each one of us as if there was only one of us to love. God's love is personal. If you have a paper Bible, take the liberty to write in it above the word world, your name. You don't cross out the word world but because God so loved the world and everyone in it, but he especially loves you. You've heard before that the Bible is God's love letter to you. Preachers often say that. If that's true, then John 3.16 is the message in miniature. If you were to receive a Hallmark card from God and open it up, John 3.16 could stand for the whole of Scripture because everything in it is contained in those ideas. For God so loved the world and he loved you in that world that he gave Jesus that when you believed you would have everlasting life. Don't believe in Jesus and you are the loved of God who will perish. You notice I said nothing about the perishing. John is going to comment on that in verses 16 through 21. It's his commentary on what it means to perish and how not to. You'll see there he has the word condemn, condemned twice, and condemnation. In the original Ghostbusters, the guys were looking at a building for their headquarters. Harold Ramis said, I think this building should be condemned. Serious metal fatigue on all the load-bearing members. The wiring is substandard and completely inadequate for our power needs, and the neighborhood is like a demilitarized zone. You could make a case that mankind ought to be condemned. There have been close to 40 million abortions worldwide just in 2021. Chicago is your kind of town if you're a murderer. Cook County has reported over 1,000 murders so far this year in the Windy City, setting a record. Murders will set records in at least 12 other major U.S. cities in 2021, probably more. Each year, an estimated 600,000 to 800,000 men, women, and children are trafficked 
worldwide into various types of slavery. 22 countries are currently at war. In July, the U.S. named seven nations committing genocide or other atrocities against its own people. God remains evangelical. The world ought to be condemned, and we'll read that it is condemned, but God is holding off on, uh, like we like to say, pulling the trigger on that condemnation because he wants to reach more people with salvation. For God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but that the world through him might be saved. Jesus saves. He saves in the church age in which we are living. He will continue to save during the seven-year great tribulation that will follow the resurrection and rapture of the church. He will continue to save during the thousand-year kingdom of God on earth that follows the great tribulation. There will be no more saving, however, after millennial kingdom. All of mankind from all of time will have either received or rejected the love of God. Those who would not believe will remain condemned. This word perish does not mean annihilated. Everyone lives forever. To perish is to be raised from the dead to suffer eternal conscious torment in a place called the lake of fire. Verse 18, he who believes in him is not condemned, but he who does not believe is condemned already because he has not believed in the name of the only begotten Son of God. Innocent until proven guilty doesn't hold in heaven. Humans are born guilty and condemned. Believe in Jesus and God declares you not guilty. Verse 19, and this is the condemnation that the light has come into the world. Men love darkness rather than light because their deeds were evil. Atheists and agnostics throw up obstacles to believing in Jesus. For some, the problem is pain. Why would an omnipotent, loving God allow suffering? Uh, God has done something about suffering, we're fond of pointing out. He's done a lot, as a matter of fact. He sent his son, his only begotten son we just read, to die on the cross to solve the problem of sin from which suffering springs. And yeah, we see a lot of suffering in the world, but only because God wants more people to avoid eternal suffering and eternal condemnation. If you were here for any of our studies in the Revelation, that book deals mostly with the Great Tribulation. God is going to act decisively once the tribulation begins. He has a plan to end all suffering for all time, but some people are not going to like it because it requires receiving Christ as their Savior and they love their sin too much to give it up. For others objecting to this, uh, it might be science. You hear a lot about science today and there's a thought that the Bible is somehow not scientific. Uh, the fact that the, the Bible is not a science textbook but it is always accurate when it comes to science. There's nothing science has discovered or think they've discovered that has overthrown anything in the Bible. Uh, they, scientists hide behind the failed theory of evolution or they subscribe to the science fiction theory of an infinite number of universes. Uh, their new hero is Dr. Strange, I guess, you know, but uh, this, is a, this is a very scientific concept today, uh, the multiverse, that there are an infinite number of possible universes and one of them just happened to turn out like this with perfect order. And so that's the idea. Because we used to say as Christians, we still do say, hey, you can't get order out of disorder. Airplanes don't just come together by themselves. Watches don't just come together by themselves. A universe doesn't come together by itself. And a scientist says, oh yeah, sure it could. If you had an infinite number of tries 
one of them might turn out just like this. All right, so the Marvel comic universe is where we get our information from now. The actual problem is their love of darkness so that they might remain evil. Now, you don't have to be a serial killer to be evil. Skip straight to the 10th commandment. Have you ever coveted anyone or anything belonging to someone else? You are evil. You've broken the 10 commandments. Verse 20, for everyone practicing evil hates the light and does not come to the light lest his deed should be exposed. Snakes. Why does it always have to be snakes? Indiana Jones dropped a torch into the pit and the asps began to scatter. Jesus is the light dropped into the world of men whose God is that serpent of old, the devil. The word of God exposes sin. We can either run from it or repent and embrace it. Verse 21, but he who does the truth comes to the light that his deeds may be clearly seen that they have been done in God. Believers have been born of God, born again, born from above. Our spirit, our dead spirit has come to life within us and the Holy Spirit is in us. He's a person that we share a life with. We can see spiritually and therefore respond biblically. God, the Holy Spirit living in us ought to make a difference in how we live that may be clearly seen that our deeds have been done in God. That's what that means. You would expect that if one minute you are a hell-doomed sinner, selfishly uh, thinking about nothing but gratification of your flesh, and then the next you've received Christ and the Holy Spirit lives in you, that as you go forward, your life would be different. Because now it not only belongs to God, but God is on board to help you live it. And so that's what John is saying, is that we may be clearly seen by others as Christians. When Henry Morehouse fell ill and was on his deathbed, he looked up and told his friends, if it were the Lord's will to raise me again, I should like to preach from the text, God so loved the world. You and I preach John 3.16 every day. We do. Think about this personal paraphrase of verse 21, knowing everything we know from this morning and looking back at verse 21 and what John says, we could paraphrase it like this. I know the truth and have come to the light and thus it ought to be clearly seen that I am walking in the enabling and the empowering of God, the Holy Spirit. 